What was it like growing up with a mentally ill mother? In a word, shame. Or at least that's how I perceived everyone around me treated the issue. Until eventually, I too learned to treat it so. No one talked about it, and everyone on her side of the family, which included ten brothers and sisters, ignored it. They treated her, and us through her, as something reprehensible and distasteful. And the truth of my mother's condition was always avoided or covered up. That's an excerpt from an article written by Brianne McDonald, April 2014, ThoughtCatalog.com. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, the podcast where we share real stories of mental disorder to overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. Welcome to episode three. My name is Laura Bochancy, and I'm here with Spencer Bledsoe. And we have a great interview for you today with ESPN writer and former Mets mascot, AJ Mass. Yes, we are pumped to have AJ on the podcast. He's got a lot to talk about, and we get into disorder within a family, which we also talked about last week. The only difference is AJ isn't talking about a sibling, but rather a parent. And because he's talking about a parent, he's talking about how this sort of disorder can just cascade and carry on throughout an entire life and how you see oftentimes disorders pass from generation to generation and just the interplay between different family members and how when growing up in an environment like that with disorder, especially from a parental figure, one has to cope both as a kid and as uh, AJ ultimately grows up and deals with some current issues as well. You're going to find in this interview that AJ has a ton of openness and freedom in talking about mental illness. And I love what he brings. He's got a lot of wisdom um, that you'll find in this interview. And before we get into interviewing AJ, we just want to address how much we appreciate everything we've heard from you. We've gotten so many emails, so many tweets, and we kind of just want to pay homage to everyone we've heard from as we start this conversation and build this. Really, we, we want it to feel like a community. We want it to be a community and a back and forth. So we just want to reflect on some of the things we've heard on Twitter at Gary H. My Lazy Cat says just listen that was very genuine and eye-opening i will be listening to every episode we need this and it's really encouraging to hear something like that yeah i love that i really do feel the community i mean for spencer and i we just feel like we're having a conversation and it's cool that you guys are kind of listening in and feeling a part of it and we also are he hearing from a ton of mental health professionals who are contacting us about contributing. Uh, for instance, at Sean Falconer says, congrats on the podcast. You have interest in talking to a clinical psychologist. Let me know. I'd be happy to talk. Uh, well, Sean, and for any other mental health professional, if you're listening, yes, we want to hear from you. So you can contact us at our temporary website, redeemingdisorder.wordpress.com, and you can just give us a brief summary about a specific story or subject that you find interesting in your line of work. And that also goes um, out to anybody who is wanting to share their personal story. We love to hear them, and it just thank you for sharing them with us. We feel the support and the bravery as you do that, and we're excited to to eventually share them. Yeah, just as much as we want to hear from people who have something to share personally, we want to hear from those of you who have something they want to hear shared. If you think really a topic deserves some attention or there's a perspective you have that you want to see explored, even if you don't want to be a guest, that's still something we want to hear. And all of that is helping shape the podcast into what it's developing into, which we're really excited about. And before we get into the interview, just want to remind you to check out our show notes. Well, we have different resources there, including the Suicide Hotline, some American Psychological Association resources for kids with mentally ill parents, since we talk about that today, and also how you can reach out to AJ Mass and Spencer and myself. So resources in tow in the show notes, 
we think AJ is going to prove as much a resource as what you can read in that he has gone so many years through all the issues we talk about and has a really valuable perspective. I'm really excited for you to hear this interview. And here we go. All right, so let's get started with our next guest. And though we're going to get into a lot more as we talk through our guest's life, we're going to start out continuing this dialogue about disorder in a family. How does a family cope? How does how do relationships morph? And what happens when it's not your sibling struggling, like with Angela in our last episode and her brother, but when it's your parent? And our guest today is a man of many trades. He's a friend of mine. He's a former trivia buddy. Uh, he writes for ESPN. He's largely focused on fantasy sports, fantasy football, fantasy baseball. He used to be an MLB mascot, Mr. Met. And he has a perspective on so many different sides of what we've been talking about in the discussion we're starting. His name is AJ Mass. AJ, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. Spencer, uh, it's good to see you again and talk to you. And Laura, nice to meet you. <laughs> Great to meet you, too. Yeah, always. It's. I think it's, it's going to be really good to talk to you because I know we've talked as far as us meeting and getting to know each other and realize that you and I, AJ, have a lot in common and have noticed these like eerie similarities in our life. So I feel like as it pertains to mental disorder, you, with everything I know of you, can speak to a lot of things that I'm really interested about, and it'll be good to kind of get that perspective of the the me plus you know 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's just funny because uh, when I when I first met Spencer, you know, it was it was after watching him on Survivor, and uh, you know, as I told as I told you, Spence, like it's like it was like watching myself as a younger kid like that that's what i would have been like on the show it was just like that's i saw crazy. myself in you and so it was like meeting you was like it was like it was like almost looking through a mirror like traveling back in time a little bit <laughs> i mean obviously obviously you know you're much better at chess than i am though i did play but uh <laughs> but is it very i mean we've we've talked we, we have a lot of similarities yeah. in the way we think and approach the world so when i heard you guys were doing this podcast i, I uh, listened to the first couple of episodes and i just uh i think it's a great thing that you guys are doing and uh, what i I'm, I'm behind what you're trying to set up here and and was happy to help out yeah thank you awesome thanks so much yeah we're we're super grateful for having you so to get started i guess let's start at the beginning and if you want to talk about sort of your childhood i know you talked about that you had some issues with family and our guest last week angela talked about having a family member her brother with disorder um you want to just sort of introduce us to your experience with that yeah, well, I mean, you know, ever since I was probably six or seven years old, I I, I remember waking up one night with, the, you know, after having this nightmare mm -hmm. uh, that there was this wolf, and he was in my bedroom, and he was like, you know, I, I didn't really know what he was doing there because, you know, I live in a New York City apartment. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't exactly wolves, uh, you know. Right. This isn't Little House on the Prairie, uh, but you know, I, I just remember distinctly this 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 feeling of dread and this feeling of foreboding and that there was this wolf in my room and I didn't quite understand it and you know when the haze of, of being asleep kind of went away uh, kind of discovered that actually that night my my mother had taken one of the house lamps and broken it over my father's head oh. and the wolf in my dream was actually a police officer with a beard that oh you know, wow. that's kind of how I translated it in my six seven year old yeah. head emotionally um, as far as your uh the the ideas of what was happening yeah yeah and and so you know ever since then like that that's kind of like my go-to uh dream when i'm having stress or anything like when when there's wow. a wolf in my dream i know like i'm having like you know horrible stress in my life so it's always yeah. been like the thing that my brain goes to like hey you're having stress you're having stress something's up wow uh, but yeah, so like that, I, I I didn't really understand what was going on when I was you know six seven in terms right, of that. Right, of course. But obviously, you know, at that age when you know suddenly you wake up one morning and you know your mother's going off to to Creedmoor Hospital in, mm -hmm. in New York because mm -hmm. you know she's clearly there's something wrong with her. She just attacked my dad, and and so that you know that certainly uh, that incident impacted obviously the rest yeah. of my life. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, I. It's like that wolf became the core association in your brain at such a young, early developing stage of stress and of this conflict. And I imagine that was super confusing, right? Like, were there times oh, yeah. when you were growing up? I mean, you had this recurring dream and 
did you even try to make anything of it? Were you just confused when you, before you grew up and sort of associated the two, connected the dots? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think I was really confused by it. It's just like, you know, in retrospect, you go, oh, that makes a lot of sense now because I could trace it back to that night. You know, it wasn't a night that my parents ever talked about, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. certainly um, uh, because my mother was diagnosed with pretty much everything in the book. Um, wow. She mm-hmm. was diagnosed with manic depressive bipolar schizophrenic disorder. Um, so, you know, she ran the gamut. Uh how, so, how long was she in the hospital? Uh, for that incident, she was in the hospital probably for about three or th- about three years. Um, wow. um, came out for like two and then pretty much was in and out uh, for the next five or six um, until she was just permanently institutionalized. Uh, yeah. You know, it goes through... Uh, New York City is a very big city, and there's a lot of bureaucracy that goes on in there and everything. So it goes through phases where there's halfway houses that you can live on your own for a little while and, and things mm-hmm. like that. But um, generally speaking, because of her treatment, um, they put her on lithium. And okay. I don't, I don't know, like I, I don't know what the current uh, you know treatment is for for these. Uh, ailments, but certainly at the time that was the best they could do. And mm-hmm. the problem with a lithium treatment is that you your body builds up a tolerance to it. So you take it until you literally poison yourself, and then you have to come off the medication, and the illness comes back with a vengeance. Wow. Um, and it just becomes this cycle. So there were these moments of, I wouldn't even say clarity, but there were moments of, of less... Uh, disturbance, uh, and then moments of of more disturbance, uh, and then and then physical toxic uh, effects where you know she had to be hospitalized. Yeah. Man. So it's it just became this recurring cycle. So I would say of my childhood from the time I was six to kind of remember you know my earliest memories from six until the time I was starting high school, she was probably home for maybe three years. Wow. Wow. Of that. Um, so it, it really was a very different uh different uh childhood growing up with really not having uh both parents around even though she was alive and and in my life but she wasn't really around yeah god what an intense medical procedure i mean that that's the the treatment i can't imagine going through that or being around someone going through that and when you were young did you feel uh did you feel any fault or shame surrounding everything happening? No, I didn't feel any fault or, or anything like that. I mean, th- it was more of uh, it was more of a fear because, um, mm-hmm. in addition to to my mother being crazy, and I, I will I will say I like to say I use the word crazy because it, your life becomes insane and mm-hmm. your your thinking becomes crazy. I'm not I'm not mm-hmm. a person who tries to be politically correct and and like you know, i know there are some people out there who'll be upset oh you know they're not crazy don't use that word i i i understand that but um just in general uh to me words if any you, your if life crazy yeah well, yeah it's but your if you're truth gonna fo- it's your reality if you're going to focus on the words you're not focusing on the problem mm-hmm. um so i that's what I call it. If you don't want to call it that, that's fine. But let's talk about the problem. <laughs> you know? right, so that's right. you know, I feel that way with a lot of things. So it's, uh, labels are, are just stupid. Uh, so, but I just want to get that. But I do. Yeah. No, I mean that's. I want to get into labels. I think you know we started that conversation last week, and I think it's so important as far as how we diagnose, and it's something I actually relate to a lot on a personal level that um, you know I had an experience myself when I was growing up where I had a parent who was not on the level of your mom, but whose psychological scars really did a number on me and felt like emotional abuse at a lot of times. Um, and you know, it's recently I was talking to this parent and, uh, the parent said, uh, they had this memory of me when I was a kid, uh, playing on the sidewalk and they were seeing me sort of get a little unstable wobbly and that the thought crossed their mind, wow, you know, my life would get so much easier if Spencer fell and broke his head open and died. Whoa. Um, and so obviously that's, uh, that's uh, really is a debilitating thing to hear. And I was soaking that up when I was young and you could call it uh, being disordered, sort of that attitude. But at the same time, this person, this parent hasn't been diagnosed with anything is not on 
the level of your mom as far as actually committing violence or anything like that. And it sort of left me in this place where I was really confused. I was recently thinking about this and talking it over with my girlfriend. Like, is this parent of mine, would you say this parent has a disorder or not? And I think you could look at the symptoms of something like borderline personality disorder or maybe even aspects of being bipolar and argue it. But honestly, I'm not sure. And the conclusion I came to is I genuinely don't know. And so that was part of the need I felt to start having this conversation about how we diagnose and the fact that we're binary and you have it or you don't. And so label dependent, because I had these issues that caused real problems that I think are similar to some of what you experienced, just not nearly on the same level. And I genuinely don't know if you would slap that label on there, but the issues are still there. I kind of wonder as you're talking, um, it sounds like you guys both really, you know, had tough parent relationships, but I wonder, AJ, was it, because Spencer, you're talking about not having that label. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, AJ, having that diagnosis and that label, was that kind of helpful in a way? Um, You know, it. You also have to think of the time that I was growing up because I, I, I was born in 1970. So we're talking late 70s. Um, people didn't talk about this. The, the grown-ups didn't talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, this wasn't something, this was something you kind of hid from anyone. So uh, it's hard to hide the fact that, you know, she's not around from people. But generally, I, I, you know, we didn't have many close friends. Like my, my parents didn't have friends. We didn't have people come over to the house or, or things like that because, uh, you know, doing so would expose you know the horrible news that mm. you know that she's sick which you know the fact is she's sick so yeah. you know the, the, but that's mm-hmm. not how people treated it they treated it as something that was contagious or something that was you know would rub off on them i mean that, mm. that's that's the way society was back then in many ways right. so um uh, so it, it was being taught to keep it a secret um which was more damaging i think than than that also the fact that um my mother's sister was also similarly uh, afflicted. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, with nobody talking about it and and with no resources, there's no internet. You can't just go online and yeah. go to WebMD and look at stuff up. You don't even have up. WebMD, I mean, which we're complaining dude, about. That's not sufficient. You didn't even have that. Yeah. Yeah, no, there was no way to find this out. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, you know, even go to your local library, you're not allowed in that section as a kid. Like, what are you going in mm-hmm. this section? Get out of here. So yeah. um, there's no way to find this information and no one's talking about it. So it's, it's, it's knowing and hearing bits and pieces and trying to piece it together as best you can. And I was a smart kid, but certainly I didn't have any of the medical knowledge I needed for this sort of uh, thing. So, you know, my fear growing up uh, was that, well, if, if my mom has it and my aunt has it, then certainly I'm going to get it too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it becomes, it becomes this, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways that, that, you know, the, you start, driving yourself crazy thinking you're going crazy or fearing that you're going to go crazy it, it, yeah it, it really it without anyone there to tell you no it's going to be okay or you know you know no one thought about like taking me and my brother and saying to aside and saying look this is what's going on and yeah. it's just like yeah she's in the hospital um, well so <laughs> that's so aj sounds like with your parent even just even having the label and the diagnosis even having that you it was still hard to understand what was going on and i'm kind of going back to spencer's story about his parent do you think spencer that it would have been helpful to have that label or a, a diagnosis or do you think you would have ended up kind of in a similar boat with aj yeah about that I think it would have helped in just having some validation um, in being able to say there is an objective defined reason why this is happening. I'm not imagining it. It's justified that it's upsetting me. But I think the fear is still there. And what you said, AJ, really just hits close to home as far as wondering, is this going to happen to me? Am I going down this road? Is it genetic? And it gets into this nurture versus nature question where you see i think it's a common theme and this is just anecdotally i don't have really solid evidence but i think it's a common theme that you see these things through generations among siblings and uh i don't know i want to explore whether that's genetic or whether that's something where because these people experience symptoms and suffer from some kind of disorder 
their behavior, their pain affects the way they're able to parent, they're able to be a sibling, and it's the nurture side of things that can drive these patterns that we see. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's it's interesting that, uh, like, the, my fear, like you said, my fear is that it, it would be the nature that, that, would, yeah. that would get me in the end. It, it, as it turns out, it, it does end up, whether it's intentional or not, um, to be the nurture. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I in the years that, that my mom was around, um, you know, she's your, she's my parent. So she is, is mothering me. She is teaching me what it's like to, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. And this is what, you know, this is how, yeah. like any, any this mother is normal. would. I mean, and you grow up right? thinking and, that's yeah. what's normal. And, and her views were not normal and her, 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 her view on life was, was completely skewed, but that's what I'm seeing as an example. And that's what I'm, I'm learning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I call it like, you know, the indoctrination of insanity, um, because, you know, whereas some people go overboard with, with religion and like, you know, they, they send their kids down a road where they're fearful of life because, you know, oh, if I, any, any little mistake, I'm going to go to hell. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> in my case, it was uh, oh my goodness! Here's here's uh, something you know. There there was no mirror mm-hmm. for me to look at and say ah oh, this this is different. You know yeah. we, we're in our own little uh, bubble. Um, this is what a mother does, and this is who a mother is, and you know that that kind of impacts later on in life when you're trying to make relationships of your own and and you know this is this is the example I have on what a relationship is, and it's it's certainly not normal. Totally. Um, you know, luckily, uh, in some regards, I, I was able to figure that out quicker than some people, I think, in my situation. But mm-hmm. certainly, I mean, it it had an impact on, on me. And still to this day, it has an impact on me. My relationships with the people, I'm very withdrawn. Uh, I'm not quick to open up to people, yep. uh, despite going on a podcast and talking to you guys yeah. about this. But, <laughs> but I, mean, that's, I mean, that's only because I've had, I've had these discussions with you in the past. Yeah. So yeah. I, and, well, it kind of goes back to healthy attachment right when you're young and that having that um you know being able to attach to someone that you really can trust and can rely on and that can impact all of your relationships in the future which i think you're talking about so um when did you start seeing at, was it when you not until you're older that you saw it impacting your relationships or was it when you were younger too yeah i, I you know i think it was it was definitely a situation where I was very, because we were taught not to discuss it, um, you know, then my instinct was not to form close bonds with anyone because then I'd have to invite them over to my house. And, right. And then, you know, when I was nine, my grandfather died. And so, you know, now it's like, okay, see, if I get attached to somebody, then they'll they'll, mm. they'll be taken away from me, you know. So, like, mm-hmm. there's, you know, that, you know, reinforcement of don't, don't let anyone in. Just, you know, do your thing and just, it's you not know, safe. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where where it, it starts. And um, they said you become indoctrinated in that. That's that's the way you have to do things. And so, um, you know, growing up, I, you know, I, I I was became the type of person who was comfortable floating from group to group, and mm-hmm. I very very easily could get into any group. Um, but I was never going to be a close, you know, core member of that group because yeah. as soon as they started to pull me in, I was like, well, well I'm going to push you away now and go over here. Yeah. <laughs> Friendly a lot with of everyone, acquaintances. I will say there was one benefit. It, it, it's weird how life works. The one benefit I, I will say that came out of all of this is that because my mother was uh, in the hospital for most of my formative years um, and my father obviously had to work, um, yeah. They hired a uh, nanny to, to watch us until we were school age mm-hmm. uh, and able to take care of ourselves. Been living in New York City, latchkey kids were a thing. So, you know, once once we were old enough to, to unlock the door after school ourselves, we didn't need the nanny anymore. But <laughs> there, was, there was a stretch there of like two, three years from like six to nine years old where I was raised essentially by this lovely Jamaican woman named Mrs. Clark. Um, so as a result, um, I also did not learn racism from anybody. In mm-hmm. fact, I learned quite the opposite. Like she was my maternal figure for those three years. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when it, when it comes time to, you know, go into the world and everything and interact with people who, who don't look like you, um, I was never taught 
that there was anything different about that. Um, you know, it get, got to the point when when I was in high school, uh, some of my high school friends, I, I remember my friend Aisha came up to me one day, it's like, you can tell me the truth, you're black, right? You're really black. <laughs> because, just because I was so comfortable when a lot of people hmm. weren't, and yeah. I just... My, I, I took a lot of mannerisms from Mrs. Clark, apparently, and, and embraced them as my own, you know, and it's just yeah. like, no, I'm really not. Come on. And, you know, and it made fun of her because, I mean, look at me. Uh, and those of you I know, you're in a podcast, you can't look at me, but look <laughs> at me, guys, right? <laughs> well, it sounds like she was your safe person. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, who else would it be, right? It's the yeah. only person, the only grown up in my life at that at that time. So. Yeah. Well, it's cool you're able to see like that silver lining. I'm, I'm wondering, too, um, if that's was your entire childhood of having your mom in and out of a hospital like that. What other coping strategies do you think you developed? You know, I just threw myself into education and like really I became like a super nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, because one of the things is as, 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 as crazy as my mom got from time to time, when she was in those moments of clarity, she was really smart. Um, and she was going to college, uh, trying to get her, her degree. Uh, and so she was taking like college level algebra courses. And I, like at nine years old was helping her with it because I just, that was, you know, I'm going to figure this out and help her out. You know, that, that was just kind of like my way of fitting in, uh, because I wasn't getting, you know, the, what I felt was normal, you know, what I saw from other other parent-child relationships. I wasn't getting it, so I thought, well, maybe this is the way I can get it. So it's just, you know, you throw yourself in that direction, and um, at least there we could also communicate with each other without actually having to talk about anything <laughs> serious right. in terms of her health. It was it's a safe like, way, know, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I think we did that. We did that a little bit, and that kind of steered me in that in that way. I mean, you know, uh, like I said, there was that nice stretch there from from nine to eleven years old when she was kind of around and kind of with it and holding down a job and and, and yeah so i did get to see a glimpse of what you know it could have been uh you know the 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 kind of uh it's a wonderful life kind of <laughs> alternate universe <laughs> right. there but yeah it was short it was short-lived unfortunately but yeah. uh, you know at the same time she would also like you know totally flip out on on things like you know, if if uh, you know if we stayed up late and like you know tried to sneak to watch Saturday Night Live or something, and there was anything remotely PG thirteen, she would just totally flip out. Mm. Like you know, my gosh, you know, like that that was the most horrible thing in the world. So, right, like, like an off the wall reaction, and you just assume, oh well, this is you know again, you don't have necessarily a point of reference to say this is not normal behavior for a parent. But right. how did it continue? Where you found academics, you found. Uh, that you could help with your mom with her math homework or, you know, fit in with groups but maintain your distance. How did that sort of carry on through life? Or did you keep those same coping mechanisms or did it ever have to morph? Yeah, well, I, you know, when I was, when I was 17, I had uh, just a complete panic attack one night. Just, just my heart, like, was going like 180 beats per minute. Um, you know, the, Called, they called an ambulance, and I mean, it was clearly it was just a panic attack. There was absolutely nothing wrong with me physically. Mm-hmm. Um, but they put the EKG on, and like the uh, the technicians were like, "We've never seen an EKG that looked like this before." Like they were just they were like baffled by it because it was like it was doing like reverse loops or something <laughs> like that. Like, wow. <laughs> So, which, which of course made me much calmer. Yeah. Knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't know what's wrong with me either. Oh, Great. it's making such a pretty picture. <laughs> Great bedside manner. Um, you know, uh, insomnia, staying up late at night, like those are things just just, just normal for me. Um, and, and I I've learned that I I have seasonal affective disorder, and come this time of year, certainly when when it gets darker earlier, I, yeah. I tend to. To really just you know, I get depressed. You know, I have depression. I'm I'm, I'm on I'm on antidepressants, mm-hmm. and you know, I've hit the age now uh, where I you know I realize that it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> like it's like you know, like you're like, oh my gosh, why would you share these personal details? Like, you know, I don't have two Fs to give anymore. Like, you know, it's like life's short. Right. Life is very short. So right. like you know, my father died a couple of years ago, and like ever since then, it's just like you know what, like <laughs> he spent his whole life not talking about this Mm -hmm. and not talking about how he had to deal with with my mom and you know he didn't the reason my father 
died uh, when he did is because he went five years without going to the doctor because he was afraid of what they might find. Um, and it was the not going to the doctor, which is what caused him to get sick enough where, guess yeah. what they found? <laughs> you know, you're, you're dying. So, it, it, you know, I, I have to not, I have to learn from that example and not go down that road. So, yeah. you know, for me, it's like the coping mechanism is just um, doing my my best to try and and be open, you know, to go to therapy, um, to get on the antidepressants. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I don't even, I, you know, my wife has been yelling at me for years to just do it because it's, you know, something I need to do. But, you know, there's still in the back of my mind was always that, ah, oh, but that's what your mom did, you know, and it, it's, 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 it's always there. Um, it's just, you got to get to the point where you can get over it. Yeah. It sounds like you're talking about, and this is something I'm really passionate about too, is just like, who cares what people think and just take responsibility for your own health. Like, I think that's so important. Do you feel like the same way? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, you know, it's silly because, you know, once you go on the medication for a little while, you realize, Oh, I do actually feel better. So, you know, it's, it's, right. it's not yeah. that big a deal and no one, like, no one knows about it. Like, you know, it's not, you know, if you don't want to tell anybody, you don't have to, but like, you know, there are so many people like, it was the funniest thing. Cause I remember, going back a little bit uh, when I was in, just after college I moved to California for a little while uh, and all our, like a whole bunch of college buddies we all moved out there trying to you know become sitcom writers we we're going to conquer <laughs> Hollywood uh, and uh, I was rooming with two people and I knew them in college but I didn't know them all that well and within about the first two weeks of us living together we realized that all three of our mothers were manic depressive bipolar wow wow just so happens so like it was just like oh so this is much more normal mm-hmm. or at least more commonplace something that happens story. yeah but yeah do you think it, you guys bonded unknowingly because of that no no i don't think so it was it, was, <laughs> uh, it just so happened i'm not going to name names because you know they're not necessarily mm-hmm. out about this but uh, no i think it was just uh you know we just happened to uh know each other and and I, I think it's it's a lot more commonplace than than you know, everyone thinks that their situation is unique to them because People don't talk about it, and right, when people don't yeah. talk about it, they don't know how prevalent it really is. And yes, I, I guarantee you, my mother's case is far more severe than most people's. Right. Uh, now, having lived through it many more years, but, but as soon as you can talk about it, you can find those common threads. And yeah, it's, I mean, that's so huge what you say about getting help when you when you need it. Actually. Uh, forcing yourself through those doors and doing what you have to do, whether it's going to therapy, whether it's finding a medication and, or whether it's talking about it where I think we are still in an environment. I know you said when you grew up, people didn't talk at all. I think there's still so much ground to cover that so many people, you know, put in your position with your past would say, I don't want, uh, people could think any number of things. I don't want anyone knowing about this, you know, the labels, the, uh, people judging me for being on a medication or for going and talking to someone, seeing it as a weakness. Uh, I think that's still the reaction of a lot of people. So it's, and it's so powerful that people like you can help start to bridge this gap where I'm hoping it will just cascade as we talk more and more about it and more people feel comfortable. They'll realize it's something you can feel comfortable about. Yeah. I mean, to me, what what really, really hit home for me was just, uh, you know, I have so many friends who were closeted for so long because being gay was something you couldn't talk about. Mm. And it, in a way, it's very similar. You're closeted about be, you know, being mentally ill yeah. because you know, people will, will think different, think of you differently. And I'm an atheist, and uh, it it's really weird because I, I grew up, my mother was Catholic, mm-hmm. and my father was Jewish. And so how could I be anything but an atheist? from the time I was a kid to before when my parents were, were kids to today, like, what do they say? Well, we don't discuss religion or politics in polite company. And I say, well, why don't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. If it's polite company, then we should be able to, because then, you know, we can actually have a conversation with people so that, what, you know, everyone lives in their, their media bubble. And if all you know are the talking points, then you don't know it. You're just yeah. parroting, right? Um, and it's just like if all you know is, oh well, I saw on a WebMD that you know you're this. You're not a doctor. You don't know. So stop it. Don't diagnose yourself. Don't you know? I don't know. No, that's a valuable conversation. I don't think it's just. There's more to this than just the facts and the talking points. There's more to mental disorder than just this has these symptoms with this treatment. 
you know, can you can recover in this way. It's dynamic, changing, it's on a spectrum. And there are people like your mom who are far along on that spectrum and people have different resulting needs. Yeah. So if I, if I can, let me, uh, and I just wanted to do a nice little, uh, button on, on, on this, this, uh, story. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause like I said, my, my mom was, uh, certainly, uh, not the only one in my family who had mental yeah. illness. My aunt also suffered from it as well. Uh, and uh, because both my mom and, and her sister were were unable to care for, you know, their children, it, it, it impacted in different ways is that I have two cousins who uh, I saw when the last time I saw them was when I was like 10, 11 years old. Right. And I haven't seen them since. Uh, and about six years ago, um, I decided, you know what, this is ridiculous. Let me see if I can track them down on Facebook. And I did. Um, but, you know, Facebook, if you're not friends with someone, the messages go into a side compartment uh, that, you know, they have to actively seek it out. And if they don't recognize your name, and it's been 35 years, why would they really recognize my name? Yeah. Um, so they didn't. They never responded. So I was like, all right, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll let it go. So three years ago, after my dad died, uh uh, an aunt, a distant aunt or distant cousin, some, someone on my mother's side of the family, uh, called me up and said, "Where's your dad?" And this is my dad had just died like a few months before. Like, "Where's your dad?" I'm like, "Well, he passed away. I'm sorry, you know, tell you. Oh, because I'm looking for your mom, and she didn't know how to get a hold of my mom without going mm-hmm. through my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, "Well, uh, you know, uh, I can give you her number, but you know, I can't promise. Uh, I can't promise which personality she's g- is going to show up this week. But yeah. you know, you, you certainly you're you're welcome to have have at it." She's like, "Well, I just wanted to let her know her sister died." So, she, that, you know, she, great bedside manner from yeah. wow. <laughs> from from her. So she basically she called me up and said, "Yeah, well, your aunt your aunt's dead," and click essentially. Uh, <laughs> so you know, and I went on Facebook and I said, "All right, whatever." So I'll try it again. I said, "You know, sorry for your loss," and I, I sent to both my cousins, "Sorry for your loss." Didn't hear from them again for three years. Two weeks ago, I get an, a Facebook messenger from one of my cousins. And it says, um, hi, yeah, this is strange, but I just found the Facebook message you sent six years ago saying, hi, I'm your cousin. Oh my uh, and yes, 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 I am your cousin. Hi, how are you? Um, and I, I have to ask, what did you mean by sorry for your loss? So basically, uh, I've now learned and had, had conversations with, with both my cousins for the first time in 35 years that. Uh, they haven't spoken to their mom in 35 years. Completely uh, estranged, yeah. They were Whoa. completely estranged. They had no idea. Uh, and basically, I broke the news that their mother died uh, in this three-year-old Facebook message wow. offering condolences. Oh, my word. It That's was very uh, bizarre. And but, it's, it's also crazy how they walked some kind of path like yours where you needed that distance from your mom and your aunt. Probably there was a similar mother-child relationship yeah. that uh, they ended up just independently walking that same path. Yeah, it was very, just very bizarre. And the, but you know, we've, we've now reconnected and, you know, uh, you know, are That's we so going to be cool. best of friends? Probably not, but it's great to find, like, because of my family. I don't have family on that side. The weirdest, weirdest, weirdest thing about it is that there was also an uncle, uh, an un- uncle Gene, uh, on, on my mother's side, who was a complete alcoholic and yeah. was always borrowing money. He actually he was not allowed in my house because he had borrowed five hundred dollars from my parents in the late seventies and never paid it back. So he was we weren't allowed to even say his name in my house. Uh, and I was talking to one of my cousins, and she said, "Yeah, uh, we, you know, I, I I married my high school sweetheart. We moved to this town in Connecticut." And I see, I see my husband is talking to this guy next door to me with tattoos. And I, I, I looked at the tattoos and I just, I broke out in a cold sweat. And I turned to my husband and I said, is that, was his name Gene? He's like, yeah, how do you know? He's like, oh, that's my uncle. Whoa. Wow. She had moved next door <laughs> to my uncle. Man. That's unreal. And, and she was like, she's like, uh, you know, I spoke to him once or twice and said, nope, he hasn't changed. Wouldn't allow him in my house. And, you know, the. He's now he's now gone, but uh, it was just a bizarre like uh, you know yeah. you think that these coincidences only happen in movies like right. no these, these things like happen out of and, serendipity or something that's uh, a, 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 a black comedy serendipity or something uh, yeah but that's that is wild I mean the 
obviously it's not yet a community. You said it's, you are not the best of friends with these cousins, but the fact that you met people who share such a unique experience that probably so few people can even relate to you and your family situation. And all of a sudden you have someone who kind of gets it. Yeah. And I think we had really, really good talks about it. Like being able to share this experience of not having a mother um yeah. because of because of mental illness so, you know yeah, not having but not having i mean in many ways it's like it would be better in some ways you think that oh you know at least if they had died then we you know I mean, of course now their their mom is dead but you know what i'm saying like right. it's, you know we wouldn't have had to deal with this estrangement and, and the guilt that comes along that they felt very guilty yeah. um for being estranged like yeah. i i didn't feel that way because like i said i i kind of came to terms with the fact that you know my mom was multiple personality as well and you know she one of her alter personalities would call me on the phone and i would just hang up on her because that wasn't my mother like that that was just mm. a complete evil person mm, yeah. um you know and then when my mom would call and the personality i recognized as being my mom i would right. i would happily like take the call and and talk for a little while um, but i mean to answer and not know which mom it is yeah, I can oh, it's, it's, certainly it's understand. Freaking. You can't take that. That's such a toll that ultimately, um, maybe you can't withstand. Um, yeah, it, it's freaky. I'll tell you that. It's a, like you know to hear hear the voice and to know it's it's a different voice. Yeah, like you could just you could just hear it, and, and, and yeah. she would change on a dime sometimes, and that would like be that would be like freaky. Gosh, would yeah. she remember like you hanging up on her? Would she remember those? Nah, things? she wouldn't remember. I mean, you know, now it's at the point where I think just the the years and years and years of the lithium and the other medications have just taken its toll on her she doesn't she doesn't even recognize me my brother got married a couple of years ago and she didn't know who i was and that was actually wow. better yeah in many ways it was better because she's living in she thinks she's 12 13 years old right now and so <sighs> you know, she's always asking for her sisters and brothers and schoolmates and things like that and you know that's fine that it seems like she's in a happy place but I mean, she's never coming back yeah. uh, in yeah. terms of, of recapturing the personality that, that right. she was. If, if that was even her real personality in the first place. I mean, that's, that's even the weirder thing. Is like, who knows which one was the real personality and which was the fake one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or if there even it's is such a confusing. thing as this is the real one, this is the fake one. That's got to do a mental it's just If it's just an aspect that, that is you know dominant at that particular time, I mean, it, it, certainly that could be, oh, you know, I, 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 I watch enough TV to... to <laughs> pretend like i know what i'm talking about but you know i don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i relate to that as well with like uh i my parent never went down such an extreme path but uh i'm not necessarily 100 percent estranged but we don't talk often and i have a lot of guilt as well and it is really guilty when you're not the parent isn't so far on the spectrum it's not as if my parent is delusional and actually always toxic it's a lot muddier and trickier. So I, that's for you, for your cousins. I can definitely see how that's just a such hard waters to navigate. Yeah, and, and you know, it's 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 exacerbated. I think it was by the fact that there weren't a lot of. It wasn't like I had relatives on my father's side that like I could see as a counterpoint. Um, you know, my dad had one brother who had one one kid, <laughs> yeah. and so and you know there was some weird stuff that came out. Because again, my, both my parents were just very tight-lipped about our, our family history and everything, and yeah. so it was just like you know, you know, you know, over Thanksgiving one one year, just like also my dad goes, oh, you know, you know, that's not his first wife. Like what? Like you know, things like that. Like God, no, that's I wild. Didn't that. I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, like you know, we emptied out my dad's apartment after he died, and like you know, we found all these like papers and documents, and uh, I have no way of knowing what these meant to him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you look at it like, well, why does he have a picture of this person? Like, who is this person? I have no idea. I will never know. And so, you know, it's like, right. it's just weird stuff like the family history, which is not something that was discussed, which, again, just got, ties all the way back into this secretive feeling, whether, you know, he was ashamed about something or, you know, just uh, it's private, you, it's mine. And we don't talk about those things. Do you think he was trying to protect you? No, I, I think just in many ways, he did the best he could in terms of trying to be positive and proactive and, and and you know make the moments we had together good because yeah. there was so much bad around it um you know, i think he did the best he could um he also might not know what exactly you soaked up or what you're aware of i mean it's as a kid i imagine it's kind of hit or miss and he probably doesn't even have a full list of you know what you're aware of 
Yeah, I know, I know. And and there were other things going on, certainly, with, with my parents and their relationship with each other that, you know, some of it I'm never going to know, some of it I, I did know, and just mm-hmm. it wasn't my place to bring up. So, you know, they, they ended up finally getting divorced uh, between my junior and senior year of college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, never, it had been going on for a year, the proceedings, and he didn't tell me while I was at college. He just came up to pick me up and bring me home. Oh, by the way, we're getting divorced. Like, uh, oh, oh, okay, <laughs> okay, you know. But, you know, again, it was like the, that was his personal life. Even though it, it certainly affected me, uh, it was his personal life, and he's just not going to share that with other people. And I, I, you know, I try to fight against that mm-hmm. uh, as often as I can because I don't see any value in that. I mean, obviously, you don't want to take out a full-page ad in the local paper, but, um, you know, you know, I've learned that keeping secrets like that are just no, no bueno. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and, you know, and like I said, uh you know, I'm not going to broadcast it in the daily news, but I also don't have a problem talking about it, uh, you know, and, and, and sharing it with your audience. Uh, and it's not just because you're new and don't have an audience yet. I, <laughs> some, someday you're going to have a million of these. Million yeah, you're getting in while it's safe. But, you know, like I said, I mean, uh, you know, no, I know you guys understand what, what I'm going through, having heard yeah. your stories. And, and uh, just, you know, I, I, I get that you're, you're very uh, welcoming and warm with, with, with your reception here. And, and like I said, I have no problem sharing it. So, mm-hmm. uh, especially cause like, you know, like Spencer and I've talked about this in the past a little bit. And so, like I said, you know, I, I'm well past the age where I want to worry about what other people think about me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love like, that. I can help people. Can't wait till I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same. <laughs> well, since you're already past it, if we could talk for a minute about what you experience now, and it seems like you've made a lot of sense of everything that happened when you were young and you came out of that with your pants on as much as anyone could hope to really, uh, today you do have depression and you're on medication. What's been your experience with that? And what, how do you relate the symptoms to what you viewed around you growing up or what you experienced even when you were younger? Yeah, I I think in many ways, what I experienced growing up kind of impacted me when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, you know, leading up into my 20s, and, and how I, I, I related to people. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's it's very common for people when they're in their teens to think they have all the answers, even though we all know that they don't. And then when you're in your 20s, <laughs> yeah. you think, oh, okay, now I have all the answers. <laughs> and then when you're in your 30s, you go, okay, okay. Now I'm a grown up. Now I have all the answers. And, you know, the truth is none of us have all the answers and we never will. But I think as you get older, you you learn to accept that um, and you learn to really understand that we're always learning. We can always take more steps and we can mm-hmm. always uh, do a better job of, of taking care of ourselves. To in, at least stop regard. pretending to have all the answers. Yeah, I think that was always one of my biggest weaknesses is that I always wanted to be right because there was so much wrong in my family life that I always wanted mm. to be right. I didn't want anyone to perceive any weakness in me mentally because that means mentally ill. It's silly when you think about it now, but as a, as a kid, that's kind of what where you're thinking. Like, if I get oh, an yeah. answer wrong, well, that's mental illness. And you think so, so much silly stuff. Everyone does. As soon as we can start admitting it, I think we can work on it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, still a work in progress. I still am very closed off emotionally in many ways that yeah that I, or at I, least I, it's your inclination maybe and it's something you're conscious of that oh you know to really open up to someone at least this is how i feel to really go into that place where i'm being vulnerable and open up with someone i have to remind myself because it's not my inclination right and not for nothing spencer but very few of us have to do it on national television <laughs> <laughs> um, what you went through with second chances was was really you know uh for me watching like it, it was so weird because i had met you by then and so it wasn't just a stranger on tv this was somebody like you know who i'd met and had conversations with and like to see you going through that i and recognizing um what you were going through and and knowing where it was coming from uh like wow i mean to have that be nationally televised yeah. you know kudos to you for coming out of it and i know part of you know, you needed to take a break and, and, and right. decompress after right. that because that I, I can't imagine doing that in such a public forum because it took me such a long time to do it in a private forum. Yeah. But but having come out the other side in in, in in a good stretch, you know, like I said, there's there's always work to be done and and you know, like I said, I, I'm aware now that the winter is coming. 
<laughs> not Game of Thrones, but I um, so that I, you know, I know the depression is going to increase, but I'm aware of that, so I could take steps to try and avoid that and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so this is probably you know, not the time to sell you on moving to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Uh, it, no, uh, you know, uh, it's not just me, Spence. I mean, I'd love to hang with you once in a while, but uh, you know, if we're going anywhere, my wife has already said it's it's warm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, yeah, no, but like I said, you know, it's it, it's all a matter of um, your perspective can only grow uh, as you get older, and that perspective, however, is always going to be colored by what came before. So, like you know, I am who I am because of my mother, but I also am not what I thought I would be because of my mother. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it it actually does. You seem like you have a just a huge sense of peace and like freedom just talking about it. You're like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like when you're talking about keeping things hidden and secret, I think shame only grows when you keep things secret. And it seems like you're just very free and nonchalant and just at peace about it. You know, it's it's funny, but like I said, my dad died three three years ago and I wrote the eulogy and it was the hardest thing I ever had to write. And I also Mm -hmm. recognize it's the best thing I've ever written. Mm And after you've gone through that experience, I am a writer. I mean, that's what I do. So it, it's also like it's how I communicate. I'm much, I used to be much, you know, I'd, I'd write notes rather than, than, than pick up the phone and call. I'd rather yeah. text or yeah. send emails than call. But yeah. you know, now, I'm, now I'm on podcasts all the time because it's just like, you know what? Uh, I don't care anymore. Like, like I have already written the hardest thing ever hmm. to write. Right. Like, what what father, can conquer you now that you've gone through I, that? You know, I, I buried my father. Like, I, I, I don't have to worry about burying my father anymore, you know, yeah. which was a fear yeah. for many years. Like, oh, he's getting older. Like, okay, I'm over that hump. You know, it's like, now it's just like, I try and be a good parent to my son and a good husband to my wife and everything else is just gravy. And so, you know, I, I, I I've published two books and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm proud of them. They did, did they become bestsellers? No. Did that kill me? No. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, emotionally, sure. We we, we all want <laughs> people to say, oh, this is the best book I've ever read, you know, obviously. But like, you know, again, like I, I just, I just, you hit a point in your life, I think, where you can either live in fear and live with the secrets and continue to, to try and hide yourself. Or you can go in the other direction and just say, this is who I am. Take it or leave it and if you leave it that's on you mm-hmm. and and i don't know where exactly i can't pinpoint the date when that happened but certainly over the past few years i've, I've certainly uh grown more in that direction and perhaps it's not 100 percent seesawed but it's pretty darn close because yeah. again don't have two f's to give a lot of times yeah i think it's awesome how you've channeled that openness that willingness to talk and express these things through writing and uh and through, you know, it's, you talked about you really needed distance from people when you were growing up and you were slow to open up, but it seems like you've really cultivated, maybe that's still an instinct of yours, but you've really cultivated this ability to write and express and found a lot of openness through that, which I think is powerful. And if you want to talk about, if you don't mind talking about your latest book, yes, it's hot in here for a second, <laughs> that no, uh, promotion <laughs> ever. <laughs> It's. I think it's fascinating how dressing up like a baseball could have impacted your personality and your growth. And I know we've talked about in our past conversations, anxiety and social interactions and also with taking an improv class and how that might have changed you and brought you to this openness. Have those things played a role or do they still today? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. It's It's like it all kind of stems from being in college and you know, you're away from home for the first time when you go to college and, and like you're like this is your step towards becoming your own person. So it, it, it almost gives you the freedom to escape your parents and, and everything that you left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. That was probably a subconscious thing going on there. But also, you know, you get a chance to reinvent yourself. And I did reinvent myself. My name is not AJ. I mean, you know, I never didn't go by AJ. Uh, so I kind of invented that for myself. I kind of, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny. It's like I hate the fact my mother was two different personalities. I created a new personality for myself. I mean that that was kind of a, a coping mechanism. And so you know I gave myself permission to be somebody else who wasn't afraid to be a public speaker, who wasn't afraid to go on stage, who wasn't afraid to to do all these things. Yeah. And uh, you know when I graduated from college, one of the first and you know moved back home to New York after my trip to L.A. That didn't 
didn't pan out, I you know immediately I joined an improv troupe. I mean, like, like this is this is something I, I want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, there was a audition at Shea Stadium for uh, a theme park that, with Nickelodeon that was opening outside the outfield wall, and I said, "All right, I'm auditioning for that too." And like within three months of me moving back home, like suddenly I'm I'm in an improv group in New York City performing off Broadway. Um, you know, and this and this That's is like awesome. this group was like we were around the same time UCB was was starting up. Like you know, I know the I know these people. Like these these are my my peers. I was they were co- co- you know cohorts at the time. You know, Wayne Brady came to see our show before Wayne Brady was anybody because like, <laughs> he was just the guy from the Orlando troupe that did the same mm-hmm. thing we did. You know, yeah. it was like things like that. So you know, to be exposed to that world and realizing that that was exactly where I wanted to be and that was the exact right place for me to gain the confidence to be a performer and at the same time now I'm the mascot for the New York Mets the team I, I grew up watching and loved I just fell into that through the audition for the theme park and did that for four years and to be able to perform in front of 80,000 people and at a time and just you have free reign of that ballpark to be this character who isn't you. You have the safety of being inside the costume. Yeah, being you this put character. on the costume and you have permission all of a sudden. And then at the same time, take that costume off, walk the exact same route you just walked five minutes before, and no one looks in your direction. So you don't have to be, you know, Justin Bieber, Britney Spears with the with the paparazzi following you around, and like you know, you can take it off and just be mm-hmm. yourself afterwards. It 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 was an amazing, uh, freeing experience to be able to to be that. Um, plus it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just very cool. Part of my book, Yes, It's Hot in Here, is part memoir of my time in the costume. It's part of history of mascots. Um, and yeah, in part just like what makes people want to be a mascot. One of the, one of the best conversations I had was with a guy named Henry Rojas, who was the Phoenix Suns mascot, the Phoenix Suns gorilla. And he accidentally became their mascot. He was delivering a singing telegram and got lost on his way to the seats and he ended up on the court in this gorilla suit delivering a singing telegram and he just started dancing and then the referee <laughs> kind of threw him a ball and he shot the ball and it went in and the place went nuts and, and <laughs> what <laughs> yeah That's so cool. i mean this is you know this is the 70s so like it was mm. just a, a different era but yeah. like you know then people would start uh hiring him to deliver singing telegrams to the game every night and it says at some point, the Phoenix Suns just said, screw it, Henry, we'll hire you just for, to work for us. <laughs> so we have a little more control over this. So we know that you're here. And, and he became, you know, this this incredibly flamboyant mascot. And, I, you know, he's a, a, a quiet, most, you know, there's two types of mascots. There's the introverts mm-hmm. who put on the costume and become crazy. And then there's the people who have to be the center of attention or are crazy all the time. Which one are you? Yeah, uh, total introvert. I'm comfortable talking to you guys, but you know, I like imagine I said, it would be the same for me, like that uh, yeah. almost therapeutic effect if you put it on and you can just free yourself of everything you worry about normally with perceptions and social interaction. Yeah, and escape. The, the poignant thing that Henry said to me at the end of our interview, and it, it, it really, it's, it's in the closing chapter of my book because it's so poignant. He goes, he, he just quit. He was making a hundred thousand a year in, in the mid eighties. As a mascot, which is unheard of today, <laughs> let alone in the mid '80s, right? He just walked away from it all, and you know, he, you know. So I said, you know, so why did you leave? And he said, I realized that I was this amazing person when I was wearing this mask. When I was the gorilla, I was this amazing person, and I just said to myself, why can't I be the gorilla when I'm not wearing the mask? Wow! Hmm. And he set out to be the gorilla. Wow! And so that he doesn't have to have the mask to be this incredible person, and so he devoted his life to like helping youth in trouble and uh, like like really just like uh you know working towards towards making himself this better person and yeah. i just think that's just just a great way of looking at it is like you know we we all wear masks every day every one of us whether it's the the mask we wear in front of our coworkers, our our, our people we see on the street our friends, our family like we we wear a different mask depending on who we're dealing with and it's just like well why not wear the mask that puts us in the most positive light and make that our normal face. And I think that I've embraced that philosophy in many ways, or at least try to. Um, and it, it, it took listening to a gorilla to do it. <laughs> yeah, I've got, a, I've got a title now for this podcast, AJ Mass on yeah. being the gorilla. <laughs> that's, I think that's super cool. I mean, just the, the mm-hmm. parallel between how that can 
transform someone or open them up in all these ways, help them through whatever they're working through and uh, how you've been open to that through your life as well as trying finding actual therapy and yeah, being and open still, to... And it still has to be something... You know, sorry to interrupt, but it, like it still has to be something that you yourself decide to do for yourself. There is no magic formula here, mm-hmm. um, because I, I just as quickly was just just talking to my uh, family over Thanksgiving about one of my other mascot friends who shall remain nameless. But you can find his episodes on Doctor Phil if you look carefully. Um, here's a guy who was this crazy guy in the costume, and when I met him when he was 23, he was married to a 20 year old. And then 10 years later, uh, he was on Dr. Phil having marital problems with his 20 year old wife. So clearly not the same woman. And mm-hmm. he just joined, he started posting on Facebook again. And I'm looking at the picture of his wife and going, ah, now he's in his forties and he's married to a 20 year old. And so, you know, uh, he hasn't grown and he hasn't changed. He's still living that same cycle over and over and over again. And, yeah. you know, being being a mascot didn't help him, so it's not a it's not a panacea by any stretch of yeah. the imagination. Well, SAT with, work. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, four years too late, but uh, <laughs> that's so relevant, I think, to so many people who listen in terms of the cycles we put ourselves in over and over and over, and in terms of indoctrination when you're around disorder as you grow up and you cultivate it. Uh, you know, you've talked about the ways you've changed and you're not sure if there's a specific date, but you did change and you did get out of those cycles. I think it's about that openness to finding the tools to, for lack of a better phrasing, stop the bullshit from happening and change something. And I look at you as a guy who really embodies a lot of the attitude you need to do that. So your story is incredible for me to hear and I hope incredible for everyone else to hear. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, like I said, I, I'm happy to share. And if I, you know, if, if I can help anybody just feel, you know, a little calmer about their situation for even the smallest bit, you know, like I said, there's there's no one right path. Um, but the, I think there is a wrong path, and that's uh, and it's not easy to get out of. Certainly, yeah. So I, I know that as well. So it's not like, hey, man, flip the switch, just get over it. Like that's <laughs> right. not going to work for anybody. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But I mean, if I can offer the fact that there is a chance for light at the end of the tunnel. Um, perhaps not in the way the tunnel might not lead where you thought it was leading, but you know, uh, it'll I'm lead pretty to happy air with, somewhere. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with where I am right now. So. What are, what are some actionable steps that you would advise somebody who's listening about if they're in depression or if they have a parent who with mental illness, what would you say to them? Well, I mean, if there's someone you can talk to, uh, and there might not be, um, but I mean, if there's someone that you trust who, who you haven't shared this with, and you feel that you can talk to someone, and I'm not talking about professional someone, I'm just, it would, and it could be a professional someone certainly, but um, even if it's just a friend who, like, you know, you trust who you think is gonna is not going to judge you, um, like that's a a nice first step. I mean, but also know where your strengths are. Know where, like I said, I was a writer, so for me it was easy to write about this before I could talk about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some people are singers and songwriters, you know, or whatever, musicians, like maybe put it into your music. Like whatever it is that you do um, to express yourself naturally, where you feel most comfortable expressing yourself, I think that's what you should use to at least get comfortable with the ideas uh, of, of where you are. Um, And even if, even if it's something where you, you, you're not going to share it with someone where you're just going to write it down and, and, and rip it up, flush it down the toilet or something like you know yeah. i think just the act of getting it out there into the universe um where it's out of your head I, mm-hmm. we, we all spend too much time in our own heads uh, yeah. and especially when we're in these situations mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah anything and, to get out of your head i think it's yeah. whether it's therapy or dressing up in a costume or writing something down talking to someone yeah i agree wholeheartedly jogging like if, if, you, if you like to run run then, then do that and, <laughs> yeah. and think about but think about it while you're doing it maybe you know talk to yourself while you're doing it and like just mm-hmm. but like exercise know, if, is if a tangible effect on mental yeah. disorder and depression's symptoms but mm-hmm. i think i think to me the number one thing is if you can't even talk about it with yourself then you're never going to be able to talk about it with anyone else yeah. and so you know, if it's just getting getting into a room by yourself and just talking into the pillow, you know, and even that is a good first step because at least you're talking. Totally. Right. If anyone is trying to get any more pearls of wisdom, is there anywhere where they can reach you like Twitter or 
do you want to yeah twitter is usually where where i where i hang out so you can find me it's fairly easy it's just my name at aj mass m-a-s-s like the catholic ceremony um <laughs> but yeah I, I like i said i don't i i'm on there a lot uh i get a lot of emails because of my espn stuff so i i, I can't always uh you know respond to everybody but i, I do my best yeah. and tell everybody what your book titles are I have two books. Uh, yes, it's hot in here, which we have discussed, which is a, a cool history of mascots. Uh, you can also watch a short, uh, a short film that I was a star of, a documentary on my time as Mr. Met that was directed by Academy Award-winning Errol Morris, uh, called <laughs> "Being Mr. Met." You can just do a quick Google search; you'll find that. Uh, it's uh, it's bizarre to see yourself in in, in the documentary, <laughs> and uh, especially one directed by a freaking Academy Award winner. So, yeah. but yes, yeah. uh, my first book uh, was called uh, "How Fantasy Sports Explains the World," and that's a pretty cool book. That was just. Uh, it's not really a sports book. It was an excuse to use sports for me to get to interview a lot of people that I just wanted to interview and, and tie it all into sports. Uh, so I got to interview uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson before anyone knew who, knew who Dr. Neil deGrasse <laughs> yeah, Tyson Yeah, you're all about getting uh, getting in with these people before they blow up. You really know when to <laughs> buy low. and <laughs> Yeah, just like with this podcast and you guys. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But also I spoke with Jana Spenson uh, in that book who is a writer for Buffy and Once Upon a Time. And I got to speak with uh, Yao Man from Survivor. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about uh, – he was great. Mm-hmm. He was just, just so fun to, to talk to. And uh, I also – one of my, my favorite interviews because it was done via email because he was on death row at the time. I got to interview Damien Eccles, one of the uh, West Memphis Three, uh, back when he didn't think he was getting out. Uh, and uh, it was really crazy because he was released on a Thursday and my book was released on a Friday. So Whoa. it was just like the timing was just insane. And I, I got to wow. meet him. And actually, I always said to him, I said, at some point, I want to I want to personally hand you this book, hopefully when you're when you're released. And I was able to do that. So it was, just, awesome. it, was just, it was just very cool. That is wild. Wow. So, AJ, we will definitely put the links to your work in the show notes if anyone wants to check that out you shared so much that i think people are going to find both useful relatable and actionable uh so really can't thank you enough you were an awesome guest uh thanks so much aj thanks Thanks, aj appreciate it so yeah we in that interview with aj we got into a ton i i think it went really well i think it was awesome yeah he's it's powerful for me, especially relating to him so much on a personal level to get into so much with someone who has lived more years than me dealing with a lot of the same issues. It's almost like I've seen a blueprint to how AJ has dealt with all these hurdles and gotten through them. Uh, And I hope a lot of people are going to relate in that same way. Yeah. I loved his frankness. I mean, I got to say, it was a little weird for me being basically being in an interview with two Spencers, but <laughs> it was really cool. It was kind of see what you're growing into. But um, but yeah, I loved his frankness and his just willingness to uh, go to places and talk about things in a real way that I think a lot of people aren't comfortable with or are afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so um, I loved his one line, too, especially where he said, uh, I'm at an age where I just don't care anymore. Yeah. And I, I hope I get there, AJ. <laughs> I think that's awesome. Something to aspire to, not giving an F. Um, yeah. <laughs> please let us know what you think. Let us know if you did relate to that like I did. Get as much out of that as we did. Uh, let us know what you want to see in the podcast. Tweet us. Go to our website. The temporary website is still redeemingdisorder.wordpress.com. And keep that dialogue going we've loved it so far uh we will be back with another episode i can't promise better but as good (laughs) on wednesday and look forward to talking to you then thanks guys